Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's already midday on Friday. I'm sorry it's so late, but as always, a busy schedule. It's hard to make these things in time. And um, I was just doing some work on um, on uh, some... SIR. I'm, I, did I mention I'm going to be in um, in Livingston in a couple weeks as college residents? And I'm hoping that night we'll, we'll do what we did last time, be in Muncie again at my nephew's house to do a talk on Purim, the history of Purim. But I'll have more details on that later. And afterwards, I'm working on this uh, Boca thing. Hope to be there in February sometime. Uh, as you see, Scotland Residence is one of the things I do. If you have any shows that are looking for a speaker, let me know. Um, especially after the end of March. After the end of March. But today, we're looking at Parshas Vayechi, which is very... Com- they're all complicated, you know, but Vayechi is particularly complicated. And I'll tell you the truth. When I was thinking early in the week, I figured, it's not hard, just do something about the blessings of Yaakov, or the oracle of Yaakov, which is the opposite of blessing. You know, it's a very uh, difficult Hebrew, as we all know. Just check out the uncle if you want to see how complicated the Hebrew is on Yaakov's uh, final uh, last will and testament to the sons. And I think I did this last year. I don't know. I can't keep track of all this. I think we started around this time last year. And I'm sure I must have spoken about that. You know, why he talks to the sons a different way. And so I was thinking of another angle. But I'll tell you the truth. My good friend Jonathan Marvin sent me an email yesterday. He says, raise an issue. And I wasn't going to speak about it, but now I gave it some thought. It's actually uh, very interesting. Uh, this parsha has a bunch of what I call holes or problems in it, uh, if you think about it. Just off the top of my bids, you know, I was uh, laning the other day, it was about Curry wasn't there, so uh, just for those of you who are dictic-oriented, um, you know, when Yaakov calls the sons, doesn't he? So he says, uh, what's the language over there? He also Hey, also, we gathered together, you know, I'll tell you what will happen, No, the Hebrew is wrong, meaning it doesn't conform with the grammar. Uh, look at the Pusuk. Uh, where is it? I don't know. You know, it's at the beginning of the parsha over there. And it says, uh, Yikro with an olive. Well, I should just notice that. I never paid attention to that. And it really should be Yikro with a hay. It's almost like a Bible quote. It's important. Well, Yikro, here it is. It's the beginning of parsha Memtes, I guess. My parak Memtes. Yeruvi. Maybe I'm missing something, but shouldn't it be Yikra with a hey, Yikreshem, what will happen to you in the future? That's how uncles and everybody else, the whole world translates like that. Yikra, you and I know, means a call. There's something funny going on over there. It's obviously saying some kind of a message. But, hello, uh, Doverhu. You know, this is something you want to talk about intelligently on the way back from Shoal, right? As somebody put it to me. Uh, What's with the Aleph over there in Yikre Eschem? You know what I mean. It should be Yikre Eschem. What will happen to you in the future? Yaakov is telling them the future. Um, but putting that aside, here's a more interesting, perhaps, a business. 
because as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, you know, this is about family issues and all the rest of it. And uh, Jonathan Marvin, as I say, asked me how come um, the, once they went to Israel, why don't they just stay there? Meaning once they took Yaakov to Berry, why don't they move there? Uh, why do they want to live in Egypt? Now, Pashim shot is maybe they got used to living in Egypt. You know, it could be. But I said, uh, talking off the top of my head, that I think I remember somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where, it says that Paro held the women and children as like a hostage. You know, this to make sure you come back. I think one of them before I should must say that. Uh, I couldn't make it up. It's in, it's in my head. So, uh, you know, you take a little, you know, do a little research and you'll see. Paro said, you can go. He said, because Yosef asked him permission. I want to bury my father and all that. And Paro gave him a fancy funeral with soldiers and everything. But uh, the, I think the women and children stayed behind. On the other hand, Jonathan pointed out to me, and I haven't thought about this rushing in a million years. In, uh, although, uh, just doing a little bit of research, I didn't make time today because got, I've got a new car and I'm putting it, you know, a used car, so I'm putting it through all the problems that you have with that. Um, but Rashi says in uh, 5013 in Perak Nun, Pasuk Gimel, okay? That it says that, uh, you know, Yaakov's uh, children carried him to Canaan. And they bear Mosmeach So why does it say, So Rashi, Lobanei Bonov. Listen to this. Yaakov said, I don't want any of my children to participate in funeral. I don't want any Egyptian to touch my uh, coffin. So you see now, listen, I'm a coin. I don't go to funerals. Uh, my father's, I did, but that's it. And because uh, my mother passed away in Israel. But, uh, you know, they always say like this only people went to the mikvah should touch the iron, or only Shomer Shabbos should touch the iron. You know, you hear that all the time. So Yaakov says that. He says, But you so so I don't want anybody to touch my iron, only my sons. And I don't want my grandsons. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want any of my anaklach to touch the Aaron because their mothers are Canaanites, El Atem, just the, the, the 12 sons. And he goes on to talk about other things. My goodness. My goodness. So first of all, this is very interesting uh, because it's his grandchildren. Uh, that means he doesn't trust the Jewishness of his grandchildren. I'm not talking from the halachic perspective. I'm talking about from the Yiddish guy perspective. Ad Kenekach, he doesn't want to touch the yarn. That's quite a statement. And second of all, it puts a different spin on Yaakov lives for 17 years in Egypt. We don't know what that means. I told you already, they never talked about the sale of Yosef. That never came out, at least as far as we can tell. And it seems also he didn't know who his grandchildren were in the sense of who Ephraim and Menashe were. Uh, and, although, you know, there are other, there are some Ephraim say differently, but that's what it seems. And he uh, uh, doesn't see the other, and the, the grandchildren he does know, you know, from Reuben, Shimon, Levi, and all that, he doesn't think much of them because their mothers are Goyim. Now, what does that mean? Here we went to something that I brought up from time to time, and the biblical narrative is unclear, and that is, who'd, who'd, who'd they marry? The 12 brothers. Who'd they marry? Well, put Yosef aside. He married Osnos. Put that aside for a second. Who'd the others marry? Uh, I said, this is a debate back in, uh, what, by Yishlach or something, in the Medrash, Rabbi Huda Nechemia, I think it was, and one says they married twins, uh, meaning, let's say I'm Levi, so I married Shimon's sister, something like that. And each brother was born with a twin sister, even though it doesn't say so in the Chumash at all. It only says 
Dino. But that's how he learns it. But on the Chemia says, no, get over it. They married Canaanite women, Canaanios. And I remember that there's this Sforno somewhere, I'm going back in memory, where Yaakov is told in the dream by God, get your kids to Egypt because it's not good. They're marrying the, the local girls. It's not a good situation. Now, there are, that means, I mean, think about what I just told you. That means something pretty heavy. Uh, our Avos and Imos include the following people. Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, yeah, that's true. And Sar Rivka Rachaleya, that's true. And Bill and Zilpa, that's true. And Lovan, as I pointed out, you know, you can't, can't avoid that. And then the Canaanites, we come from the Canaanim. Uh, who, I don't know the name of all the girls, one's Tamar, you know, but that's it. Uh, this drove the Ramban nuts. It, it, it really bothers him. And there's a famous Ramban back there in Periklamadches, where he really, and it's not the only Ramban like that, on a number of occasions back with the birth of Avram also, he is really bothered by any indication that we have Chom in us or Canaan because they're cursed by Noah. Right? Evidently, Yilam or Canaan can't be the people who are Rurim are our Avos and Imahos. However, Rashi just said, I told you, Rashi just said, I, you know, I, I don't want anybody to touch my, uh, uh, the, the, I don't want any of my grandchildren to touch the yarn at my uh, Kavura because they're Kananias, the mothers of a Kanan. Now, putting the best possible, Samizi holds up Reb Nechemia, that Rashi goes up Reb Nechemia. I'm talking about the Tana of Reb Nechemia, you know, as opposed to Reb Yehuda. See, this is why Reb Yehuda and the Ramban, they all say, no, 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 the, when it says Tamar's father was a, a Kanan, he means a merchant. He wasn't a Kanan, and, you know, the Ramban goes at great lengths. To tr- Although he is aware of this Rashi, I just look, glance at the Ramban. He says, yeah, in a Kanami, this Rashi in Baichi is problematic, but um, he doesn't agree with it. And the reason is, he says, you know, we, it can't be that our ancestors are Canaanites. But Rashi apparently has no trouble with that. Now, the truth is, it is a funny Rashi. And like I say, Jonathan reminded me of that. And I haven't thought about it for years, because I'm not such a big Rashi guy. I hate to say it. You know, I'm more of the Medrashah, that's what I've spent a lot of my time on the Midrashim. Uh, because why go clichény with Rashi when you see a clichém with with the, uh, the the original language? Rashi like redoes the midrash, and that's the whole style of Rashi. I prefer to see the original. However, then you miss out on the stuff that Rashi has that's not traceable to a midrash. Because this is quite a statement I just made about the our ancestors being Canaanites, and I hear all the tinnies on the Ramban. None of us wants to think we come from uh, Canaan and all that. And hold on, and First thing I did is I went home and looked up at Menachem Kasha, you know, Torch Lema. And he's got every Chazal, every one. And I looked over there in 5013, Perak and it's nothing. So where'd Rashi get it from? You know, you know what I'm saying? There's an art called studying Rashi. And one of the things you do is look for Rashi's footnotes. And there's all science to that. And usually 90% of the time or more, you'll see that the words of Rashi come from some Chazal. You know that? That's how Rashi operates. Which is fine, obviously. And that's a certain science. Uh, what you do is you see how Rashi reworded it because it's often what he did, or he uh, made it more um, easy to understand. Things like that. Uh, I've spoken about this in the past. But once in a while you find a Rashi that you can't find any Chazal. Like this one. And that's a heavy one, too. I don't want anybody to touch the camera because, you know, the mothers are Canaanites. And where's Rashi get it from? Now, 
first of all, I don't know. Nobody knows. If we don't have a source, we don't have a source. It could be gets it from other some earlier sources. They say he got a lot from Moshe Darshan, I think, or something. There was earlier safer like that. Uh, it sounds like this is a Chazal, just hasn't survived. You understand what I'm saying? We, you and I, sitting here today in 2020, we don't have all the old sources. Uh, and what I mean by that is, obviously, when they put together all the Midrashim way back in the very early Middle Ages, very early Middle Ages, so they didn't include every Chazal that ever existed. It's, it's a collection. Whatever has not survived has not survived. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes they survived in obscure Midrashim, which we don't haven't found in the year 2020. So it is possible, it seems even likely to me, that Rashi is using some earlier Chazal that he had in manuscript form that you and I don't have today. But that's all we can say. We don't have it. At least as far as I'm aware. You understand? Now, Menachem Kasha wrote this stuff back in the 20s. Uh, if I go chase it, man, you know, those who are interested, I'm serious, I'm being funny. Go look up a line, go do some homework. Maybe we found subsequent to the 1920s uh, McCor for this business where he says, I want my sons and not my grandsons to touch it. But Pashashat, not that way. Uh, it even sometimes sounds like, you know, it, it could be somebody interpolated from not from Rashi into Rashi. But these are total speculation. We go with what we have. And uh, it's just very interesting. So, so you have a debate between Rambuhun and Chemia, or in modern times between Rashi and Ramban and later sources. Let me put it this way. The Hasidim are not going to be crazy about this Rashi because uh, they're very into Yichas. I don't have... I know that the Labavitcher Rebbe had this five-volume business Rashi. I always was interested in getting I don't know where to get it, where he goes through each and every... I believe, uh, I heard from Ashley Weiner, goes to each and every uh, Rashi. I, I saw it once or twice, but I don't have it. Uh, the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I think the Kleisenberg Rebbe also, I think, has something like that. We go through each and every uh, Rashi, you know, Be'in. Um, but I don't have those. And so just uh, sitting here, it's interesting that it's not that Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. Yaakov didn't want him to go. <laughs> Yaakov didn't want him to go. Which goes to show you that Yaakov is living the last 17 years of his life in Egypt. Very nervous. Right? Very nervous. Because... Uh, there's the children generation and then the grandchildren. It almost sounds like Lahavdal, you know, like the American Jews, uh, where people say, it's like, it's eight o'clock, you know, what's, what the, 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 by the third generation is bad news. That's the story of American Jewry in large part. Matter of fact, I remember years ago reading the memoirs of Mayor Barilan, the guy who started the Mizrahi, you know, the son of the Netziv, uh, it's called Fon Volosh and Yushalayim, it's in Yiddish. And uh, he had these... Um, travels that he did in America around 1910, I believe, or 1912, and he went to Denver, and he went to a Hasidic, this is what he tells, I'm going by memory, went to a Hasidic Shtibol in Denver, and uh, a bunch of old guys, and they were running a very uh, Hasidic Shalshotis, with the Zemirs and all the other business. But he said, the guy's son walked in or something like that, and he said to his son, don't touch the wine. Which meant that the sun was no longer Shem Shabbos. And, you know, Mayor Berlin was bringing it to show you as a tragedy of American Jewelry. And what kind of a frumkite is it if, you know, if the wine is kosher, but the kids are not kosher? Well, you got the same problem over here. Uh, I can only surmise if they married Canaanite women, according to Ashita, this is just a guess, that the Pirate Mad girls are very young and they were quote unquote raised in the house of Yaakov. And therefore, sort of like we're not given the upbringing that a regular Canaanite girl would would have. Still, it is strange, right? It is strange. 
And uh, it goes to show you that we make a big deal about our yichus, but there's always, like I say, about, you know, problems in the perfect picture. Uh, consider what I'm saying. The story of Avram is he married Sarah. Okay, so that worked out. Sarah happened to be at Sadegas. That's, that's how the story is presented. Avram Megaris Hanoshim, Sarah Megaris is Hanoshim. That's way before they even hit Israel. Okay, fine. And then Yitzhak, the, the Shidduch was micromanaged, right? You know, that's the story. Send Eliezer to the well and all the rest of it. So no, Avram was very concerned about who would marry Yitzhak. And it, it worked out. But really through divine intervention, Ashkocha Pratis. That's the story of Eliezer at the well. It's Ashkocha Pratis. It's a classic example of Ashkocha Pratis. And then you have Yaakov. It's not so posh. It's, you know, Yaakov didn't have the mazel that, uh, that Yitzhak had and that Avram seems to have. Yaakov wanted to find the one girl, and he did find that's Rachel. And that seems the great love of his life. And yet, Lovin intervened, and the whole thing was a mess. Uh, because he ends up marrying four, and it's all problematic. Let me tell you something. I just did the marriage class at my son's house the other night on Vayechi. Yaakov really lashes in to somebody, especially Reuven. By the time he's finished, Reuven is busted uh, mentally. Uh, because he says, you know, you can, you can read these psukim, in the in the in the uh, bracha, I guess that's a funny word used. The bracha of Yaakov to the sons, or the last will and testament of Yaakov to the sons, and uh, you know uh, the trump sometimes is is played in certain ways. For example, it says the Yehuda Meterf Bni Alisa. So literally, it means Meterf Bni Alisa, that from the uh, killing of my son, you were Ola, and those you rose to power through the death of Yosef. Well, what you saw would be the death of Yosef, but no, that's the wrong way to read it. Meterf, look at the trump. It's not mechot tibcha, but it's tibcha mercha. Miteref beni alisa, which means you raised yourself from the killing of Yosef, meaning you prevented the killing of Yosef. You exalted yourself by preventing the killing of your brother, which is just an interesting way of, of reading it. Now, um, that's what the Chazal say. Now, uh, you say to Reuven, Reuven b'choriata. So, you could read that as a declarative statement. You are my firstborn. Alternatively, you could say, yes, Reuven b'choriata, what do you think? You're my firstborn? How would you get that's a chazal? It's not me. Uh, we did it in the manners. Amr Abacha lo shel chayisa bechor. You're not the real bechor. Klum halk Yaakov eats eleven el b'shvil Rachel. I was interested in Rachel, not your mother, not Leah. Kol acharisha shecharash to miim chalab Rachel yisim rikhlat shorsam. That's a rough statement. That when you were conceived, without being more graphic, when you were conceived, uh, I thought it was Rachel. So therefore, I mean, biologically you're the firstborn, but mentally you're not the firstborn because I thought it was Rachel. Um, my goodness, <laughs> here, here, that is a dying declaration for your father. Uh, you know, I never wanted you, you know, something like that. And, uh, the Chazal say, if you go back to Parshas, what, of Eitzi or something like that, then in the morning, Yaakov immediately wanted to uh, divorce her. Uh, that's what it says. And the only thing, she was immediately pregnant, so he didn't do it. Uh, that ain't a recipe for a happy family situation. And this is not me talking, the Chazal say that Ruben was Gantzabrachen, which is totally understandable. So imagine, by the way, if you heard this, as, you know, as the last statement from your father, especially if he's uh, somebody with Ruch HaKodesh, and, you know, you're uh, unwanted, uh, you know, access, access not the right word, but, you know, you're unwanted. So they say the Ruvain was Zabrachan, and imagine if you're in the shave at Ruvain. For the next several generations, you're going around with this kind of uh, legacy. And uh, they even say, they use the language of the Chazal, the bones of Reuben were sh- were shaking in in the coffin, which means you know it's a it's a disgrace, and 
He's only liberated by Moshe Rabbeinu, who says, Yechi Reuven v'al Yomos, and Parshish is That's the famous Chazal. The Reuven, you know, in other words, Moshe Rabbeinu gave him a shot in the arm, and he said, Yechi Reuven v'al Yomos. Reuven was a really good person. And since Moshe Rabbeinu, who's greater than all the others, uh, gave him a positive review, so then the tribe of Reuven got back its uh, self-esteem. Uh, that's, a, that's a remarkable statement. You understand? That's a remarkable. So you see, it's not just a nice, nice situation. It's a very complex situation, which means it's real. So nice and nice, that would be like, you know, for a, a children's book. But here, Pasha is dealing with a whole bunch of very complicated family situations. And uh turns out, therefore, that, uh, you know, when Mo- when Yosef introduces his kids, grandchildren, that was Yaakov, so, uh, okay, he shows them, see, they're two from kids, they got a yama because they got pay, they're all the rest of it, and Yaakov takes it in. Uh, but on the other hand, Yaakov does not permit them, at least you go by the Rashi, does not permit uh, Ephraim and Menashe to participate in a funeral. So it's kind of a talk to the Sastri, isn't it? On the one hand, he says, oh, you know, I give him double chalek and Chabir Vakashti, but then he said, don't, t- don't touch the, the, the Aaron, you know, don't, don't, don't carry me. So it is uh, problematic. It's very, very fascinating. And it raises the question, which is not explained, which is, who did they marry? You know, who, and, and you know and I know, the mother makes a giant difference. A giant difference. So who did they marry? And what kind of hashba is it bring, bringing up? Uh, now, uh, you could have a Gertzedek. I mean, there's no problem with that. But it's not based Yaakov, you understand? Uh, in our time, uh, well, it, it, let, let me put it this way. I'm old enough to remember before, quote-unquote, the base Yaakov generation. So who did, who these real from people, yeshiva guy, whatever, marry, sometimes marry rabbi's daughter, maybe that's different, but they all went public school. I mean, there wasn't the quote-unquote base Yaakov world uh, and all that comes along over there. That's exactly the reason that uh, from women's education emerged as a consensus option in the 20th century. It's a revolution, as we all know, in, uh, in traditionalist uh, Jewish uh, culture, uh, certainly at the Eastern European level, there are countries where they had some women's education, but nothing, nothing uh, very big. The entire Vorta, whole base Yaakov, as we all know, is like that. And um, here we go back 3,000 years or 3,300 years or something like that, or maybe even more. And uh, here you have Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Hudi, Sakhris, one Dun, Naftali, and all these people. And who are they marrying? And, uh, you know, What's it like at the at the Shabbos table? And it's just a very uh, interesting uh, type of situation. Now, as I said before, Yosef is able to uh, pull it off. But it's not so easy to pull off. If you go like this, Rashi, then we have a bunch of people growing up in Mitzrayim with, uh, what's the right word, mixed genes. And on the one hand, you know, the Abrahamic genes are pulling them to monotheism. But on the other hand, the maternal genes are pulling them away from monotheism. And uh, this possibly may be an explanation of why they all went out, off to Derech after the end of Parshish uh, Vayichi, because as long as the older generation was alive, we are told everybody stayed uh, from, to use a modern expression, but afterwards they did not. Now, as I said before, Yosef was able to be a sondic at the Brits of his great-grandson. That's mentioned specifically in this week's Parsha. Gam b'nei mocher ben menashe yuldu aberka Yosef. But, uh, you know, that was, a, you know, like I said before, obviously must have put a lot of time in to the chinuch of his children, his grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. I mean, that's, that's interesting. He was a viceroy of Egypt. He certainly had a full day's work. But it's like one of these parents, you know, 
that they do the homework with the kid. They just do it. Uh, because he said, if you don't do it, it's not going to be good. You know, I have to put in, uh, what's the expression? Quality time. Quality time. Um, but uh, who knows what the other brothers are. I, I, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know. But uh, it, it, so this question about, you know, uh, who are the grandchildren of Yaakov? Why did they not go? And, and why did the brothers go back to Canaan? Perhaps they don't want to go back to Canaan based on this because they didn't want their children also marry Canaanite girls. You know what I'm saying? You could view the descent of the children of Yaakov, like the Sforno, children of Yaakov, the Goshen, is actually a positive phenomenon. Right? Why? Now, just consider. You had 12 brothers, and, you know, let's put Yosef. You had 11 brothers, and uh, they're living in Canaan. They're all marrying local girls. And if you make a local girl, she's got a family. She's got relatives. Uh, we all know this from life today. Uh, how do you sever relations with them? Well, if circumstances so transpire, Elohim if circumstances so transpire that the whole group picks themselves up and moves, not a million miles away, but to Goshen, to, to the beginning of Egypt. And now they all live by themselves. So it's true that the mothers were, were you know, Canaanite women, all the rest of it, but now it's an old Jewish neighborhood, so to speak. This enabled, uh, you know, the sons to live, shall we say, a more isolated life, in which case the influences from Canaan, all the rest of it, would not be there, and uh, the children actually be brought up in a better environment. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like, it's like you pick everybody up, move them, to use an expression, you know, it's like a Sheba Lane type situation, whatever. So it's less interaction with the outside world. Uh, that seems to have been the plan. And in that case, the goals was a positive thing. At least had they stuck to that uh, schedule, to that uh, program. As we all know, it didn't work out that way in the end. And by the time we get to the third or fourth generation, they move out of there and they move into Egypt proper. And then you have a, a, a disastrous situation. So you're left with a bunch of these, uh, you know, funny, uh, you know, uh, lacunas, they call them. Holes in, in, in the narrative. Um, we don't, just like I mentioned last week, we don't see anything about a clear conversation about the sale of Yosef until after Yaakov dies. So we don't have a clear description of, you know, Yaakov and his children or grandchildren and how they acted or didn't interact, whatever, during the 17 years of his life. I mean, these are kids growing up now. Did Yaakov, what shall I say, did he run a yeshiva? Did he teach the, the grandchildren? If he did, you know, you could see, the, you know, who they are. Why do you not let him uh, participate in his funeral? Why did he write that the way Rashi wrote him? So, uh, I don't have the answers to this. I'll be honest with you. I looked around a little bit this morning before I came back from uh, where I had to go. And, you know, I looked at the usual places in Rashi. You know, it says, Chachamim, and, you know, some other commentaries, or whatever. And I couldn't find anybody that really goes on this particular Rashi. I don't say I've covered everything. And maybe you'll find places. But take a look at the Rashi on uh, 5013, as they say, and uh, see what you come up with. I think it's very uh, fascinating because it raises uh, real-life questions. Uh, you know, and uh, this, this is why we all go crazy. We should do them down till today. Anyway, that's a few thoughts. Have a good shot with For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at 
www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.